Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We're beginning a brand new study called At the Cross. Everyone say At the Cross. Um, and as we inch our way to the celebration of Easter, we're going to spend a few weeks just thinking about the cross and thinking about the events leading up to the cross and thinking about our Savior on the cross. It's easy to take the cross for granted. It's easy to forget that the cross represents crucifixion. It represents the most um, disgusting, the most agonizing way for someone to die. It represents the ultimate form of torture and what was designed to bring death to one single person on a specific day was actually a vehicle that God used to give life for all. And so at the cross we're faced with the reality that our brokenness and our sin carry a penalty. And at the cross the very Son of God took our penalty. So we'll look at what grace looks like at the cross. It'll give us a window into why the darkest day of Jesus' story reveals the brightest day of history. And so let me tell you what's coming ahead. This is what we're going to do. On Palm Sunday, in a few weeks, we're going to have uh, a discussion on the King of the Jews at the cross. Our kids will partake in our service that morning. It's going to be a wonderful service. On March 21st, in two weeks, we'll talk about the six hours at the cross. Uh, we'll talk about what Jesus did and what he said while on the cross and We'll look at the agony endured on the cross. And then next week, we're going to look at the thieves at the cross. Isn't it interesting that the story of Jesus and the story of the end of his life is surrounded by criminals? He is literally surrounded on the left and right by criminals, but even on the way there, there's the story of Barabbas. And so we'll highlight why Jesus, why God in his infinite wisdom chose to highlight criminals uh, at the cross. And so today, though, we examine the Messiah at the cross. The Messiah is met with a flurry of range of emotions as you hear that word. It's a term of endearment. Uh, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to skip around quite a bit today. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can follow along that way. We'll begin in Luke chapter 2. This verse is normally reserved for Christmas, right? We're going to read it today. Uh, ready, begin. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. It's not just a title that we give Jesus. It's not just a, a last name where it's Jesus, Messiah, or Jesus Christ. This word Messiah was uh, a term of endearment. It evoked a great promise with the Jewish people, and it should today as well. This is how Jesus' birth was announced by the angels to the shepherds. We're going to skip a few chapters and go to Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. We're skipping a few chapters, and this is what it says. One day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're Elijah, and others say uh, you are one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. And then he asked them, yeah, but who do you say I am? 
And Peter replied, let's finish this verse uh, together, ready, begin. You are the Messiah sent from God. So the angels announced it to the shepherds. Now the disciples are faced with this moment where Jesus himself is saying, hey, what are the people saying about me? Well, they think you're this person. They think you might be this person. Some think you might be already risen from the dead. And Jesus says, yeah, but what do you think? And this morning, if you're listening to this, uh, it doesn't really matter what other people say, who Jesus is, the, the God of creation. Jesus himself is asking you, who do you say I am? And Peter responds with, Great conviction, I would suppose, knowing what we know about Peter. You are the Messiah. At first, this term is a term of endearment. When we skip a few more chapters, it quickly turns into a term of ridicule. You look at Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we're going to skip ahead a few more verses, and it says this, the people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. And they say this, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is God, God's Messiah, the Chosen One. This became a term of ridicule, and then we also see it being used as a term of invitation. John in chapter 1 is the story of Andrew and Simon Peter coming to meet Jesus, and this is how it unfolds Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard that John had said, uh, who had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, look at what Andrew says to Simon. We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So this morning, the Messiah at the cross. First used as a term of announcement, a term of proclamation. Today, in the city of David, in Bethlehem, Jesus is going to be born, the Messiah. It quickly turns to a term of endearment and a term of, of proclamation for the disciples where they say, well, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, well, you are the Messiah. And then it turns quickly into a term of ridicule. Man, if you're really God's Messiah, then you, you can get off the cross if you really wanted to. So what does it mean Jesus is Messiah when it's used for so many different reasons in Scripture? Well, first of all, the word comes from, uh, the word Christ comes from the word Christos, a Greek word meaning anointed. It is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. So Christ or Messiah, depending on the translation, is Christ or Messiah, whether it's Greek or Hebrew. So to be the Christ or Messiah is to be the anointed of God. So what does that term anointed means? Well, quite literally, it means to have a sacred oil poured on one's head, usually to appoint someone to a holy office. So I want you to think way back, uh, even before biblical customs, when you think about the ancient Egyptians, they would anoint their high officials with sacred oil. The Hittites, we know, appointed their kings with holy oil. In Israel, when you look at Scripture, we know that uh, high priests were anointed, as well as kings like Saul and David and Solomon. Several times in Scripture, God told a prophet, go and anoint this person and proclaim him king. So this act of anointing with this oil emphasized that it was God himself who had ordained a person and given him authority to lead his people and act as a representative. 
Remember in the Old Testament, there's this back and forth between David and Saul. Saul is the existing king. David is the anointed one who would take the throne. But this is one of the reasons why, given many opportunities for David to take Saul's life, David refused and said, I won't touch the anointed. He put that much weight and that much value on being anointed by God. So the prominent idea here is being anointed for a specific task, a specific purpose. And biblically and even extra biblically before scripture, the most prominent idea within this title of being anointed is that of a king. So not only Jesus as Messiah refers to Jesus being anointed of God, in simple terms, we could say that Jesus Christ not only means the anointed one, but it also means Jesus, God's chosen king. This is what it means to be Messiah. Not only the anointed one, the one set apart for a very specific purpose, a very specific role, but also he's God's chosen king. And so when we say Jesus is Messiah, we're acknowledging two things. Number one, God has given us Jesus as a very specific, in a very specific role. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But furthermore, we're saying not only is he my Messiah, he's my king. We don't do well with royal terminology in America always. Because we have no king, but I want you to think about what would it look like for you to have Jesus as your king. When we say Jesus as Messiah, we're not only just talking about that he was anointed, but we're proclaiming him as our king. We are his subjects, and we are under his rule and his reign, and whatever the king says, whatever he does, we do at his pleasure. He's our Messiah, he's our king. So Jesus is Messiah. We begin here this morning. Jesus is Messiah at the cross. So this morning what I want to do is I want to examine the scriptural evidence of Jesus being Messiah. So on the flip side of your notes, you're going to notice there's a a grid, there's a chart. And I didn't uh, take the time to uh, word all the verses in there, partly because I want you to look them up this week. We're going to read several of them today, but the chart simply has... 15 different prophecies that are fulfilled in Scripture. And what we're going to do for a few moments is we're going to walk through these prophecies. You'll notice that they build upon one another. You see, Jesus as a Messiah is not an idea that was birthed in Luke chapter 2. It was a promise that God's people had been holding on to for generations and generations and generations. We'll see that. So you'll notice that these scriptures build upon one another. We'll do the first one. This first prophecy is this, that the nations will be blessed through Abraham's lineage. The nations will be blessed through Abraham's lineage. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, it says this, I will bless those who bless you. He's talking to Abraham. God is having a conversation to Abraham. And he says, whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, so the nations will be blessed through Abraham. This is fulfilled in part in Acts chapter 3 and verse 25. It says this, you are the heirs of the prophet and of the covenant God made with your fathers. In other words, the people he's talking to now who have received God, who have embraced Jesus as Messiah, the one who came to rescue from them sins. Now in Acts chapter 3, he's saying, you are now the heirs of the prophets of the covenant God made with your 
fathers. Through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. So there's the first one. Let's look at the second one. The second one is this. The nations will be blessed through Jacob's offspring, the Messiah. So we're in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. It says this, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. We move to the New Testament in Luke chapter 3. And what's interesting is Luke chapter 3 contains the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So in my genealogy, it would say that, uh, it would say that Joshua Malaputi gave birth to Joseph, his eldest son. And Joseph married Anna. And Joseph and Anna had four kids, Samuel, Stephen, Kamala, and Daniel. That's a genealogy. We understand what that is. It names the people that are part of the same family. Luke chapter 3, it says this. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. That's the middle of the genealogy. In other words, what he's doing is this. He's saying Jesus was born through Abraham, through Jacob. It's a big deal. What God promised way back in Genesis 12 and in Genesis chapter 28 is now being fulfilled through the genealogy of Christ. Let's look at the third one this morning. The third one says this, King David's offspring, the Messiah, will have an eternal kingdom. So other than the word eternal, this makes sense. King David's offspring will have a kingdom. Yeah, we know that. That's how kingdoms work. But this prophecy is specific in that David will have an eternal kingdom. So it's first mentioned in 2 Samuel 7. It says this, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's promised this to David and to David's offspring. It's fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. This is Matthew's version of the genealogy. It begins with these words in verse 1 of Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These are very specific promises or prophecies that are fulfilled between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, let's get even a little more specific. Uh, verse, or the fourth one, not verse, but the fourth one we'll look at says this. A virgin will give birth, and the Messiah will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So, not only have we been described this kingdom that's going to come through David, and that Abraham's family and Jacob's family are all going to be blessed through this lineage, but now we have a very specific instant, a virgin will give birth. It's proclaimed in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's the sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. It's fulfilled in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. Here's Mary and the Holy Spirit, or the angel is talking to Mary and said, The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. She was a virgin at that time. We'll go to the fifth one. He gives us the mom, now he's going to give us the place. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says this, But you, Bethlehem Epaphra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, 
after Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So it was God's plan that Jesus would have a profound ministry during his time, but even before and leading up to Jesus' birth, there's all of these prophecies that are being fulfilled. The, the prophecies being fulfilled have an incredible amount of weight on what we do with our faith today. So bear with me as we go through these. The sixth one is this. The Messiah will have a sinless, blemish-free life and ministry. Now, this one's interesting because in the Old Testament, we're going to get a picture of an animal in Exodus chapter 12. He says this, the animal you must choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from sheep or goats. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. In Hebrews 9, it says this, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Here it is promised in the Old Testament, and it's also fulfilled in Jesus' life. It talks about in Isaiah 35 that the Messiah will have a miraculous ministry, and that's fulfilled in Scripture. I'll let you look at those Scriptures on your own later this week. Um, the The next prophecy is that the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner. This is, uh, this is proclaimed to us in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, Bible study time. Who knows who the forerunner was in the New Testament? John the Baptist, right? Some of you are a little unsure. It's okay. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is preaching the gospel, and he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, um, and he's the one that was proclaiming, make straight the way for the Lord. All of these very specific prophecies could only be fulfilled by this one person. The next one is this, that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. It is proclaimed in Isaiah 53, and then we see it lived out in Luke chapter 4 in one instance. At the crucifixion in Luke chapter 3 is another instance. Here's another very specific one. Jerusalem will rejoice as the Messiah comes to her upon a donkey. On Palm Sunday, we're going to celebrate that. We're going to talk about Jesus being the king of the Jews and riding on a donkey and what that signifies. Zechariah 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, see your king coming to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We're talking some 400 years before Jesus is ever born. This prophecy is specifically given. We see it fulfilled in Matthew 21, verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We see that he's riding on a donkey there. Uh, The next one says this. 400 years before Judas is ever born, this prophecy is given. The Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11 says this, If you think it best, give me pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, I threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. We see it fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27. uh, All the way to the point where uh, they used the money to buy the potter's field as a place, as a burial place for foreigners. 
The next one is uh, Christ will be our Passover lamb. We sang that song at the top of the service. He is the lion and the lamb. Why do we use these animals? What's with the imagery? Exodus chapter 12 paints the imagery. He's talking about selecting animals for the family and slaughtering the Passover land. And he says, obey these very specific instructions, every single one of them. Take the blood from the lamb. He says in verse 23, uh, put it on the top and the sides of the doorframe. And when I see that blood, I will pass over the doorway and I will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. When the children ask you, what does this mean? I hope your children ask you, why are we taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday? I hope they ask you. This is the answer you give them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites to Egypt and spare homes when he struck them down. In 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul clearly states, For Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. One more about the Passover lamb. None of Christ's bones will be broken. Exodus 12 clearly lays that out. What's interesting is in John chapter 19, when the soldiers came, uh, one of the things they would do on the cross is this. When you were on the cross, uh, the way you would survive on the cross, it would take hours and hours and hours for someone to die. The reason for that is that they hung on the cross, there was a little uh, place for their feet to rest. And as they, uh, as they would gasp for an air, they would push off against their feet. They would raise their chest, and that's how they would take a breath. When they came to Jesus, when they came to the other criminals, what they would do is they would break the legs to speed up the process of someone dying. When they came to Jesus, Jesus had already died because he chose the time of his death. So none of his bones would be broken. Uh, let's look at the 14th one. The Messiah will, um, blood will be spilled for atonement. Leviticus chapter 17 says this, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Matthew 26, Jesus himself is, is doing the Last Supper, the the, the thing we're going to observe in a few moments, Jesus is doing it for the very first time with his disciples. And he says these words, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The last one we'll look at this morning is this. The Messiah will resurrect from death to life. Amen. Job chapter 19 uh, Job is giving this, this amazing prophetic statement. He says this, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were recorded on a scroll, that they, would, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. Verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Boy, we see it fulfilled in the Gospels, and Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but in the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It took, I don't know how long that took, but we just went through 15 of them. Scripture has more than 300 
prophecies most theologians believe about Jesus being the Messiah. And as these prophecies reveal, God planned our redemption all the way back at the garden. Jesus' death and resurrection were the most important events in history, and it's no surprise that God would give us these signs uh, throughout Israel's history and his prophets to reveal his incredible love for us. These prophecies are specific enough that the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling even a handful of them, not all 300, but just a handful of them, the mathematical probability is staggeringly improbable, if not impossible. A gentleman by the name of Peter Stoner uh, is the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College, or was, I should say. And with 600 students, uh, he looked at eight specific prophecies about Jesus. They came up with an extremely conservative probability for each one being fulfilled and then considered the likelihood of one person in history being able to fulfill all eight of these prophecies and the conclusion to the research was staggering. The the prospects that anyone in history would satisfy these eight prophecies was just one in ten to the seventeenth power. So eight prophecies being fulfilled by one person. One in ten to the 17th power. He illustrated it this way. He said, let's try to visualize this. If you mark one of ten tickets and place them all in a hat and thoroughly stir them and ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in ten. Suppose that we take ten to the 17th power that number of silver dollars and we lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state by two feet. Now mark one of these silver dollars and we stir the whole mass of silver dollars. And we blindfold a man and tell him, you can travel as long as you want, you can travel as far as you want in the state of Texas, but at some point you have to pick one silver dollar. What chance would he have of getting the right one? One in ten to the 17th power. That's what Jesus fulfilled. Keep in mind, this is eight prophecies. So when we say Jesus is Messiah, it's not a flippant statement that we just say because it's something we grew up as a child. It's not a flippant statement that we say because the song makes sense rhythmically and with the right tune and with the right harmony. What we're saying is the chances of anyone in the history of the world ever completing just a handful of these prophecies are so minimal that Jesus did more than 300. It fills us with this great expectancy. It tells us not only is he the anointed one, not only is he the king of our life, but he is the only option to be Messiah. He is the only one. Jesus is Messiah. So, what do these prophecies of Jesus as Messiah mean for us today? There's two simple takeaways. You still with me? All right, let's do it. Two simple takeaways on what Jesus' revelation that he is Messiah means for us today. The first one is found in 1 Corinthians 15. We read the verses prior that said, Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is their victory? Paul concludes that chapter by saying this, Therefore, since we know that Jesus has risen from the dead, since we know that death has no sting, since we know that grave has no victory, 
Therefore, verse 58, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Jesus is Messiah. What does that mean for us today? We press on because God keeps his promises. We press on because God keeps his promises. So when Paul says we stand firm, that means what Jesus has declared to us as truth in Scripture today. He is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. And because he keeps his promises, I can stand firm in his word today. We stand firm. He goes on to say, let nothing move you. That means despite what you might hear, despite what you might feel, we will not be moved. Despite what you might hear or read or scroll through, you will not be moved. Despite what your feelings may say about your present circumstances or what your past may say about where you've been or what your past may say about the guilt that you might have had, Despite all of that, we stand firm and we let nothing move us because God keeps his promises and he is faithful to keep it. He goes on to say, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. So we press on because God keeps his promises. What do these prophecies of Jesus as Messiah mean for us today? I would say the second one is found in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, it says this, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Day after day, that means every single day, uh, the temple courts from house to house. That means where they worshiped and where they lived. They never stopped teaching and preaching the good news that Jesus is Messiah. So what does that mean for today? Well, Jesus is Messiah, so we preach Christ. Because God came to rescue us. We preach Christ. Boy, oh boy, for for as long as we get to be here on this earth, as long as we get to attend, as long as this church is still standing, we will be a church that simply preaches Christ above all. We will preach Jesus Christ born living a sinless, perfect life, fulfilling Scripture as he did. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless, perfect, blemish-free life. He performed signs and wonders as prophesied. He was born in Bethlehem as prophesied. He was a Passover lamb as prophesied. None of his bones were broken as prophesied. And when it came as the appointed time, God raised him from the dead and he resurrected from death to life. It's not a flippant statement. It is something that was proved over and over and over again through Scripture, through multiple witnesses. Jesus is Messiah. So we preach Christ. We preach that Christ can forgive your sins. We preach that He who is faithful, uh, He who, um, um, help me out, First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means who we are, who we were, does not determine who we are today. That our identity rests in who Jesus says we are. 
that when we receive Christ, we're receiving the, this, this identity that supersedes anything in our past. So when we say Jesus is Messiah, boy, oh boy, I'm sweating, I'm excited, I'm a little out of breath. My Apple Watch is like, are you exercising now? Do you want to turn that feature on? I'm just saying you should be excited. Jesus is Messiah. And because he is, we press on, we stand firm, we let nothing move us. And because he's Messiah, we preach Christ because he came to rescue sinners. He came to rescue you. And by the way, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Christ didn't come to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. These are verses that, were, were, uh, that apply to us if we were the only person it was written to. He would have done it anyway. He is the Messiah. We're going to take three, or four week, four, three more weeks to look at the Messiah at the cross. But before we even get to the cross, I need you to understand this is a big deal. It should move us. It should move us in a direction closer to him because he moved heaven and earth to fulfill these prophecies for you, for me. He is the Messiah. Let's take a moment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are, I am overwhelmed with the sense of just so much gratitude and thanksgiving that you would move heaven and earth for us to be redeemed. So, Father, I pray that we would never utter the words, Jesus is Messiah, without a, a breath of wonder, without a breath of thanksgiving, and without a breath of proclamation to tell those in our lives, Jesus came for you. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed for a moment, and our worship team is going to make their way forward. In a moment, we're going to, we're going to proclaim our love to him above all. And we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. But as they prepare to lead us, and as you're sitting there with your eyes, or with your heads bowed, uh, it just gives us a little bit of privacy. Jesus is Messiah. He's the anointed one. I'd like to ask you this. We know he's the Messiah. We know he's the anointed one. Uh, would you say he's your king? Is he the undisputed, anointed king of your life? As we remain with our heads bowed, I would, I'm going to pray for you in a moment that because God keeps his promises, because he's king of our life, and because he's not going to stop keeping promises in our life, that we would press on, that we would stand firm, that nothing would move our conviction that he is Messiah. And because he's Messiah, because he's king, boy, if that's really true in our life, then guess what? Our lives should be a reflection of his authority and his kingship in our life. So I wonder if we take a look at your life and we take a look at your relationships, does that reflect his kingship in your life? That you honor and you love and you're gracious and that you're forgiving, that you're loving and that you're patient and that you're kind and compassionate. I wonder if we looked at your time, would it reflect that Jesus is king? 
because you have time set aside every day for him, because you have time set aside every week to gather with God's people, because you have time set aside every week to, to love on your fellow neighbor and your fellow friend and family. If we looked at your time, would it reflect that Jesus is king? Watch your toes, I'm going to step on them. If we looked at your finances, would it show Jesus is king? That every time money came in, money went out for the kingdom of God. That if we were to organize your bills and your expenditures on where you spent that money, it would reflect that your citizenship is not here, but it's above, that it's heavenly. Is he king of your life? With your heads bowed, boy, if you've never placed your trust in God and proclaimed Jesus as your Messiah, your Savior. I just want to talk to you for just a minute because he came to rescue you. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned that we've all come short of the glory of God and that the wages, the penalty, what we get for our sin is death. Oh, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, if you've never placed your trust in Christ, you've never said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be king. If you've never done that, oh, I can't encourage you enough just to come to Jesus. Would you come to him? Would you come to him who moved heaven and earth to save you? Would you come to him who lived a perfect, sinless life so that he could actually be your penalty for sin? That he would take our place, that he would be uh, the penalty for our sins so that we would not receive death, but that we would embrace life. Well, it's a free gift he's offering you. I pray that today would be your day of salvation where you would simply say, Jesus, I want you as my king, my Messiah. In a few moments, we're going to take communion together and, and we're going to identify with Christ by taking communion then. And perhaps if you're sitting here and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, maybe this is your first declaration of your faith where you get to say, I want to identify with him. I understand what the body, the blood and the body, and I understand what the bread and the juice signify, and I am here to proclaim Jesus is my king. Perhaps today is the first time you would identify with Christ and receive communion as a follower of Jesus Christ. There's going to be stations all available in the sanctuary. I'm going to ask you to come and receive them by attendance or masked and gloved. You can take the cups back to your seat and, and receive communion. Oh, if you're a follower of Christ, I give you these words. Jesus is Messiah. Heavenly Father, in this moment, we proclaim you as our Messiah and as our King. And above all, we proclaim that. Above all, we give our praise to you. Above all, we want to give our worship to you. Every bit of attention we have in our life, we want it to be focused on you above all. 
In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.